Let us pray. Gracious God, thou who dost call so many of us to thy service, we bless thy name, we rejoice in thy presence, and we pray thy blessing that there may be for each and every one of us some new insight that will make for us to become better messengers from heaven. Use us and use me especially, Lord, for I will surely give you all the glory. Amen. I suppose the first thing I ought to confess is that this is the first lecture I've done since I crossed over into the 90s. And it's the first one I did since my beloved companion of 64 years departed. It's a lecture, and I want it understood that I know what a lecture is because too often I find my brethren preaching. And uh, I do understand that this is the Dobbs lecture, and in the traditions in which I have served these 50-odd years as a professor, I have been aware that you ought to say something that hasn't been said, something that can go to press if necessary. And for that reason, please don't expect me to be the preacher I would love to be anyhow, because that's what I love most to do. I'm going to be then technical, and I must admit that the thing about which I want to speak is something I never spoke about before, and that's what you're supposed to do. And, uh, well, it's going to be an interesting thing, I suspect, for many of you, because I don't suppose anybody has ever heard a discussion of this before. I have been called, I think, to speak about Holy Spirit, human emotion, and black culture preaching. Holy Spirit, human emotion, and as you can well imagine, the main topic is something you've probably never heard discussed before, namely human emotion. For limited purposes of this discussion, the preaching described and studied is the traditional preaching of the gospel as it is found in the pulpits and congregations of most black denominations and communities, and it is generally examined in a book I published over 40 years ago called Black Preaching. The word emotion as used here, denotes the affective aspect, the affective aspect of human consciousness. Better understood in common conversation by the word feelings. Emotions most often brought to mind, of course, tend to be negative emotions like anger and fear and hate. However, the word itself is neutral and the highest values of our society come to life as high emotions like faith, hope, and love. Now about these three and all of them emotions, not doctrines. 
The most notable emotion in the worship of black churches under discussion is the emotion of joy. And I'm sure you will understand that joy, like love, does not exist on paper or in abstract ideas of intellectual excellence. Until joy happens, there is no joy. Likewise with all the rest of the emotions, both high and low. The content of emotions is not the result, therefore, of intellectual effort. Rather, when given a name other than love or hate, the content of emotion may also be called an intuition. This is in harmony with our theological understanding that the emotion of saving faith is a gift of grace and not a work of the human mind. We may know the experiential sources of the mental images in a hate intuition, but that doesn't give us control of it, whether we call it an emotion, a feeling, or an intuition. Likewise, legal requirements and or serious training may compel people to, well, to get rid of their hatreds on the surface, but this is a far cry from the true emotion called unconditional love. High emotion would seem always to be highly desirable, except for the fact that emotion does not imply ordered expression. Emotional spontaneity is not the opposite of order. Emotional spontaneity is all too often considered to be so. Talk about more of that later. The result is that while pious, mobile, middle-class Euro-Americans may slightly envy the warmth of black worship, that envy stops far short of a true admiration. Indeed, there is under the rugs a slight attitude of superiority and hyper-sophistication. Majority culture worship is traditionally and officially defined as where the gospel is properly preached and the sacraments properly administered. Emphasis on the word proper. This sudden interest in emotion may seem strange to you and all the more so in the light of the pervasive presence of emotion in all of human history. I was led to it to my own surprise, but then I couldn't get away from it, and so you will suffer with me as I proceed. Emotion is evident from the very beginning of human history. It starts with the worship and expressed feelings that are evidenced in the very burials that define prehistoric beings as human. It is widely held that the design of the tools provided for, afterward, for the afterlife proved we can think. 
This defined us as human beings, homo sapiens, man the thinker. And in Western culture, that defines us. But I declare that faith in the creator and love for the deceased proved that we had feelings which motivated the design of the graves and the tools and the care. Homo fides, man the believer, moved by emotions called faith and love. These two mark us as humans, humans in the very image of God. If I were preaching about emotion, I would quote Jesus' summary of the faith found in Mark 12, 30 and 31. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment, and the second is life unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, keeping still in mind that love is an emotion and not a doctrine. Here again is that emotion called love. The heart employs every aspect of our humanity in the task of expressing itself. Since the heart is the center of all emotions and its love guides the soul and mind and physical strength, this commandment places the love emotion over the whole of the human being. This commandment doesn't begin with Jesus. He's quoting the Mosaic law. In other words, long before humans even knew there was such a thing as a mind, they already knew that they were to use all they were and all they had to express emotions like love and trust and joy. The bottom line is simply that we are saved by grace through the emotion of faith. Without the emotion of faith, we can't be smart enough or work hard enough to be saved. And Jane and them used to put it very plainly. They didn't know about academic theology, but they said it like this. If you ain't felt nothing, you ain't got nothing. In other words, there may be innumerable ways that people of different cultures may sense the saving presence of the Holy Spirit, stirring within us the emotions of faith and love. However, if within the cultural expectations of one's upbringing, she or he has never in any way felt the movement of the Spirit, one needs seriously to seek that presence above everything else. Aunt Jane's simple declaration may inspire books full of significant implications for the Christian life, as well as a whole package of understanding about preaching and worship. Indeed, such scholarly enterprises are required of those who love God with the mind. But please note the simple fact that minds act Activity is focused by heart's emotion. This primacy of high emotion 
over even our vaunted reasoning is the very essence of our faith. Once one finally accepts the theological primacy of high emotion, the instant need arises for the spelling out of the homiletic implications involved. What does this mean for sermon design? Fortunately and quite interestingly, the practical applications in sermon design are not nearly so demanding as the theological applications may seem. In fact, theology implied above was silent and unspoken when Aunt Jane said that. But it had to be brought to light. It would have been a virtually perfect match for the homiletic principles that I shall seek to explain. This is to say that African-American preaching tradition had Now, I'm afraid I've got a problem. Looking for page six. African-American preaching tradition has in its natural unspoken flow of folk rules, the kinds of things that I will be saying are compatible with this understanding of the primacy of high emotion. These principles are in profound agreement with this radical proposition of the primacy of high emotion. Although it's just now appearing in connection with high emotion, these principles are found to be remarkable com compatible with earlier homiletic rules like, for instance, the one that I have offered through the years of the need for a behavioral purpose to flow from a text, which is also an emotional purpose. I didn't have a clue that high emotion was also a behavioral purpose and Trump's abstract reason. Such a match as this illustrates the unquestionable legitimacy of this primacy of high emotion. In fact, what is now presented is new understanding, but it's also old hat. The principles extrapolated from the black tradition in a book that I published in 1970 fit right into and implement this strange and threatening new role of high emotion. I hope I won't be seen as a peddler of my own old books when I select from my work a book called Celebration and Experience, the following sample outline of old new principles for preaching as applied to a sermon with a behavioral purpose of trust, high emotion. The sermon I will suggest as one of the two that I shall work with is the Sermon on the Providence of God. The biblical text is Romans 8, 28, 
Instead of an abstract essay on providence, the following principles lead to living trust. In other words, preaching the sermon, as I suggested, is not to make a theological statement, but rather to move people to deep and unshakable trust regardless of trials. Any cognitive information about the theology of providence is at best only secondary for the preaching goal of a changed life towards deeper trust in real people. This trust, of course, is a highly emotional purpose. Trust is a purpose and not an idea. Trust then is what I have to offer that will help here develop this stomp down absolute regardless of all trials, trust. The rules, I've already said, you start with a behavioral purpose of trust. You select then a vehicle of experiential encounter that the hearer can identify into and live in trust vicariously. Deep emotion responds to experiences, not to abstractions. And if faith and trust are emotions, then you need to talk to faith and trust as emotions and not as abstractions. The Holy Spirit uses stories, metaphors, streams of consciousness, variations on the narrative to create emotional growth. Clinical professionals, incidentally, depend very heavily on stories to heal people in ways that reason simply cannot touch. You see, people don't grow to trust because you urge them to. Like the father in Mark 9, 24, the cry is, I believe, I've got some kind of a belief here, but, but good God, please help me with my unbelief. All high emotions like trust have a habit of not responding to wishful orders, not from anybody, anywhere. For example, for a behavioral purpose of compassion, we have chosen an easy to tell story like Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan. We did it in class yesterday too, Luke 10. The hearer is to identify with the Samaritan. However, we might learn more from another kind of sermon, like a sermon on providence, which doesn't have any story of its own at all. So then you add a part of your own story or somebody's story to Jesus' metaphor about the hairs on your head. I have preached this and had an interesting response. When Jesus preached providence, he illustrated the care of God by stating that the very hairs on your head are numbered. This illustrated Paul's word that God works in literally everything for good. The people who kept house and swept floors, etc., for them providence became real just as Jesus intended because they they could see 
those hairs. When I added my description of my sweeping of the floor in my student apartment, it really registered. I saw the hair on the dustpan. I saw the hair on the floor. I saw the hair still on top of my head, what was left. And I made it very plain that God was fully aware of all of them and could give you the number if you needed it and you could get to him. I added my description and my sweeping and my own attitude. We pondered God's counting. The awesome feeling was a powerful help towards trusting the providence of God. So in real life, this concrete image was used by the Spirit to accomplish the behavioral purpose of encouraging growth of an emotion called trust. It happened when people's feelings were touched. In other words, we have seen illustrated the effective application of this threatening sounding insight about the primacy of the feelings of high emotion over a process of reason. In the design of a gospel sermon, this process employs experience to communicate with emotion in a way that is not possible otherwise. That is to say that the Holy Spirit uses this understandable metaphor to reach people's emotions, which is where most decisions are made and where people are changed. There are differing rules or guidelines that apply to the various vehicles of experience. For purposes of this presentation, the rules that follow apply only to the many forms of the story or the narrative. This includes character sketches, personal testimonies, impersonations, group studies, and just plain old third-person eyewitness tales. A third rule, every story, whatever the form, must have a protagonist or a main character, a whole group, whatever, serving as a main character. This person or group of persons must succeed in the behavioral purpose that flows out of the biblical text. This person may be thought of as the heroine or the hero with whom admirers identify and whom they desire to emulate. This achieves the behavioral purpose. When one identifies with the Good Samaritan, one becomes more compassionate or wants to become more compassionate at the very least. Rule four is every story has a conflict or an issue which maintains suspense and interest and involvement. In focused, purposeful, sermonic storytelling, the issue or the conflict in this story is the behavioral purpose stated as a question. In other words, it's very simple to understand how to focus a story take the behavioral purpose and ask, will the Samaritan dare to risk 
getting bloody and even being robbed himself to help this victim? That's the question, that's the conflict, and that's the basis for suspense. The answer to this question is called the resolution of the conflict, and the answer is always a simple yes. Yes, the behavioral purpose was achieved. Yes, we can expect that the Holy Spirit used that parabolic story to move the hearers to be more compassionate, or at least to consider it seriously. This is how Jesus preached always. Matthew, Mark, and Luke said that he told stories, used metaphors, told stories like this. There's nothing now left to do once you have resolved the conflict but to, to engage in the celebration of the success of the behavioral purpose. Celebrate the success and give God the glory. It's interesting to note that ever since the 1970 analysis, it has always been taken for granted that here at least in this celebration is a time for a very useful expression of emotion, a focused, freely expressed emotion is what the celebration or the climax, as people used to say, always does. In the story, in any story, the emotion of celebration, of course, is joy. It is all positive. No negatives can be celebrated. Fiery mad must not be mistaken for fiery glad, even though some congregations have been unhealthily conditioned to enjoy chastisement in a kind of emotional pathology. It's easy for the preacher to sound wise when he's tearing something down, but we want to celebrate what was built up. Gospel news rule applies not only to all celebration stories, but to all material of the celebration. Here are some lesser but very helpful suggestions for the emotional focus. Let me stop here a minute. When am I supposed to be finished? 1230? <laughs> uh, is it 10:30? OK. Here are some lesser but very helpful suggestions for emotional focus. Always celebrate the text and the behavioral purpose, not some other effective crowd stirrer. People will remember the chicken gravy and forget the solid message of the beast if you switch. That is, hearers hold on to that about which they become most involved emotionally. Avoid repetitious cognitive summary. There's no exams to be passed. Save your best story for the last and build up to it. Time the suspense to peak at celebration. Be glad and really celebrate. Uh, sit down. 
I don't think it's in these notes, but one of my favorite statements is the probably the greatest sin of the black pulpit is the sin of irrelevant celebration. Where you preach a great sermon and tack on the end your most moving celebration, whether it relates or not. Avoid repetition, that's a cognitive thing. Save your best story for the end. Save heightened rhetoric and poetic language also for the celebration. It is the language of the deeper feelings. It is also the unspoken signal for the preacher and the people to release from their very depths the emotional response to the whole of the sermon with spiritual joy. Hosts where you are the guest preacher will forgive your inability to preach to their selected text, but they will not forgive you for a poor sermon, no matter what the text, including the one they chose. One more, be sure that your celebration material is familiar not only to you, but to your audience. Feelings are choked when one has to struggle to understand and relate. Young urban members have no way of relating to powerful stories about cotton and mules and things like that. As you can see, celebration may require more preparation than the rest of the sermon. However, it is often good to know something of how you will celebrate whatever text you have before you try to build the sermon because whatever you do is to build up to this celebration. We turn now to the inevitable challenges that arise from people when one has already offered the first blow challenge of a system to which people have given their all, a challenge like the primacy of emotion. People still depend on the Western worldview with which they grew up. They've depended on that same system, and I have too for my more than 90 years, and I'm grateful for your willingness to hear me out as I challenge it right to the bone. Challenges to the primacy of high emotion are as follows. Most threatening implication from Aunt Jane's statement through the years has been the first glance suggestion that one doesn't need human reason in order to get good religion. Must be understood that while one can never use reasoning arguments and data to gain the emotional experience of faith, one can reasonably argue away some intellectual objections and obstacles to profound belief. For instance, many supposed atheists think faith is foolish because it can't be proven in the lab, so to speak. This calls for a true story, incidentally. I had a, a dear deacon friend who invited his atheist boss, who was a PhD in pharmacology, to explain his position to me, since he himself didn't know how to defend himself against the daily teasing of his atheist boss. 
As if his parlor was a boxing ring, he introduced us. He invited us to his living room, introduced us to the center of the room, and invited us to come out of our corners fighting strong, doing battle. Well, I had to decline the invitation because on the, on the grounds that we couldn't debate when both of us had a different set of unprovable presuppositions. Not only could I not prove by any of his scientific ways the existence of God, but he couldn't prove the non-existence. So we couldn't really argue. I did offer, however, to, uh, to testify on my findings in the laboratory of life for my then 39 years. Uh, I maintained uh, that like all good scientists, I had a working hypothesis which I pulled out of Hebrews 11:6. they that seeketh what God must believe that he is and that he is the rewarder of them that diligently seek it. And I maintained that uh, like all good scientists, uh, I had never had any, any kind of a failure on part of my working hypothesis. Then I asked him for his hypothesis. Because he had never seen an atom. You can't prove there's an atom. Well, you can. Uh, yeah, you can. That's like I'm testifying. You testify about atoms. You haven't seen one, and you ain't going to see one, I don't think. To my amazement, he didn't even have a hypothesis. I then sensed that there was something wrong here that he wasn't saying. I said to him, why are you so angry with God? And he fell for it. When you answer that question, you have already admitted that God is. I said to him, what, what, what did God do to you that made you get mad at him? And he answered, my mother was a saintly soul. She died a long, lingering, painful death of cancer. And if God was a good God, he wouldn't have let that happen. But still a God, huh? It was one of those interesting, interesting experiences because once he realized that he had already admitted to God, his next question was, where is your church? I was so grateful to the dean in my seminary who told me how to ask that question. It's a fact that reason can be used to destroy ob objections and questions, but you can't get the real thing till the obstacles have been removed. Soon, still another use of the mind and reason is when one seeks to truth, to find truth for any good purpose. God's the author of all truth and more truth the more truth one seeks and learns, the more one is bound to love God. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with thy mind, but you do it because your heart said so.
in a 12th grade physics lab, I felt like shouting one day for real spiritual joy because the teacher revealed a fascinating fact of physics, which was obviously the work of God because it went against all of the rest of the rules, but it fitted in to the welfare of human beings. Professor said, I can't take this any further, but there was another drop. He had showed us a drop of water and asked us how it responded to heat and to cold. And there was another drop in the corner of his eye. But he didn't have to go any further. I didn't shout, but I sure wanted to. Reason, data, all of this is subordinate to the purposes of high emotion. But this is not the downgrade human reason. This is because reason has to be subordinate to something. Reason is a process and not a substance. It has to have substantive issues concerning which to act. What better issues and objectives than those supplied by love and care for neighbors, sisters, and brothers in Christ? Second most familiar challenge to this primacy of emotion has to do with the place of intellectual preparation. Why read and study, you say, if the prime concern is emotionally determined? The answer lies in the distinction between cognitive grasp of the word and emotional identification into the word. One needs to grasp all the insights and relevant data possible. It lies ready and waiting to be a resource from which to build the emotion of love. With high spirit guidance, you can make choices and act on them. In other words, at no point should these fresh understandings about emotion be interpreted to reduce the need for preparation. Faith and love and the rest simply supply the why, the emotion of a what process, reason. Reason for centuries mistook itself for a why, but it never is and never will be. Be it very clear, however, that this is not to oppose the long hours of reading and study. Simply means that the primary goal changes from cognitive grasp only to holistic encounter. A preparing preacher upgrades from the still needed cognitive comprehension of a vicarious entry into the gospel story. In that state of encounter, the emotions and the will are primary learners. The sermon story becomes an eyewitness account rather than a cold journalistic third person report. The preacher's casually detailed version provides still another vicarious experience, which is the hearer's identification. Instead of just hearing about Good Samaritan, he feels like he has seen the Good Samaritan and thus has helped to identify with him and is motivated to be like him. The preacher who would design experiential encounters then with the word is best prepared for the purpose by her or his encounter of his own while he's preparing. In other words, instead of just reading the Bible story, one turns the screen on uh, 
and turns up the volume. Then just as one enters vicariously into the action of a great movie, one speaks, one sneaks, peeps at the woman who touches the hem of Jesus' garment. One sees everything and experiences for herself or himself as a preacher and becomes a contagious spreader of the faith. The story one tells is the story of a living witness with emotional contagion that is later described as powerful preaching. The third most common challenge or question has to do with the ease with which emotional effectiveness is subject to abuse. Here again, emotion is such is neutral. But this is a bit difficult to swallow since a whole Western worldview has for more than two millennia held emotion to be carnal and evil and out of control. We simply have to break the habitual mental mistake of blaming emotions for bad ends to which this magnificent power has been put and misused. To treat emotion with Western culture and negative stereotypes is to throw out the baby with the bath. It is to waste the magnificent power inherent in overlooked high emotions. To be sure, there are emotionally manipulative charlatans in television and in every size of congregation from a dozen to 25,000. But these thousands are not helpless, they are helpless they are getting the religious entertainment that they desire or they would have changed it before now. I'm reminded of the noonday hour prayer, the annual convention of a Black Baptist Association back in 1959. The speaker had almost unlimited power to stir people's emotions. And he, uh, his first three sermons were great, greatly responded to. Thursday noon, though, the message was different. There was hardly a word of response in the entire audience except for the speaker's wife. The once enthusiastic host of people had sensed unanimously that what this man was preaching just very definitely was not in the Bible was surely not blessed with the Holy Spirit's power. The Holy Spirit emotion is not and never has been irresponsibly influenced by this sort of thing. In a tiny corner of the human psyche, there is providentially placed a thing called a subsection of a human being's rational ego. It guards the entrance to the emotional tape room and it sees to it that for thoughtful people of faith, the false message of manipulation is locked out. It was this part of the sane psyches that shut down what would otherwise have been a preaching circus at the meeting which I just described. And this resource is far more available than is commonly assumed. The Aunt Jane types have abounded also in this unspoken kind of common sense safeguard on guard 
all the time. This guardian against nonsense serves also against harm and danger when there is a strenuously active response to the emotion of great joy. Such responses are not found among the cultural expectations of most black churches today, but there are still some where this authentic outburst of praise can be dangerous to, 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 to your body. They are not uniquely black insulinated. They can be found as far back as David's Psalms. The point here is the belief within some cultures that truly possessed persons will never be injured. That's a firm belief, and I follow it. People who really are under the, the influence of the Holy Ghost will shout, and they will not be injured. The Holy Spirit makes moves and uses usher boards and deacons and such to protect everybody, regardless of what the Spirit makes them do. Whole congregation partakes of some of the holy ecstasy that's at the bottom of it all. We get some by contagion. I must tell this story and then I must sit down. More than 60 years ago, a small town Baptist church revival, I saw a mother of maybe 20 years or so illustrate this protection of the Holy Spirit. She wrapped her year-old infant in an ample blanket and executed a perfect short lateral pass to her grandmother. She herself then sailed over the back of the next pew and landed safely to accept the tender care of other mothers and ushers. I would hardly have believed it if I hadn't seen it. But it was no real, it was so real and meaningful that actually nobody laughed. I got a big lump in my throat. A tear formed corner of my eye. I have five more pages, but I have no more minutes. I thank you for your attention. God bless you.